talk about movies i want to relax i want to meditate on decline (laughs) and the constant fear that we all live in for our jobs uh and i think that casting a conversation around joaquin phoenix's napoleon is a great way to do that uh yeah can you introduce yourself and tell us about the wonderful things that you do me, Gita Jackson? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm Gita. <laughs> That's what you need to know about me. I'm Gita. I am a co-founder and co-owner of Aftermath, which is a new website about video games and the internet and everything that we feel like writing about on any given day. And uh, I I love my beautiful baby website, and that's where I go to write blogs and think about culture and the future of the world, and also similarly ruminate on decline. <laughs> so true. Oh, Lord. I don't even know where to start, because it's like, we had an idea for this episode, and then a bunch of things happened. <laughs> yeah, it's been kind of like, like, this week has been kind of wild, um, there, there's been a lot going on aside from watching a movie that, that, you know, I guess let's preface this by saying there are spoilers for Napoleon in this episode, but also you probably took a history class at some point. So you already know what happens. He loses. I didn't. I'm not going to lie to you. I, um, this is a fun story. I think for a podcast, I went to high school. I went to two schools simultaneously. I went to an arts magnet school program in regular high school. But in order for that to like work, I had to not take the full high school curriculum. So they like forced me to take pre-calc for some reason, even though I'm not a math person, but world history was not on the docket for me. So Russian Revolution, French Revolution, Napoleon, all that stuff, stuff I had to learn independently as an adult. Yeah, but that's why we have things like ABBA. Like that's that that fixes the problem for us right there. Waterloo. It happened. Yeah, (laughs) they'll tell you all about it. He was defeated and then they won the war or something like that. I don't I don't know. Citation needed. Waterloo. (laughs) There you go. That's all the only lyric I can discern from this song Waterloo. (laughs) So it's, I got to see it with a uh, military history nerd, a, a, a retired war correspondent, uh, and he was just he was just happy to be there. <laughs> and, the, and like uh, during the Waterloo scene, he was like, oh, "I wonder if they're going to make the boxes." It's like I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they made the boxes, though. They did. They did do that. He's like half drunk on white claws, explaining. <laughs> Uh, Duke Wellington's boxes thing to me loudly in an independent theater downtown. <laughs> uh, we were also the only people in the movie theater laughing. It's a funny movie, it though. Is funny. I think we were also the only people in the movie theater laughing. I'm sorry if you don't think you guys think you're so cool because you have so many boats is a not a laugh line. Like that's a laugh line. Obviously, this entire movie was hilarious. It was so funny. The man loved a pussy so much he died for it. Like, <laughs> I kept thinking uh, what this would have been like if it had been like an Iannucci movie. Mm-hmm. Like it, f- yeah. it had that feel. Like Duke Wellington on the on the ship where he like hitting his head because uh, he's too tall, or when they chase Napoleon out of out of that room and his brother <laughs> like pulls a sword on him and lies about killing him right there. 
the face he makes, his brother makes, like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, Shut up. It's fine. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I mean, I think part of it is, like, the, the, the horrors of digital film cinematography, right? The movie is very, very gray. And I think that... It, that lends itself to a, an overly serious feeling for a performance in a story that it is kind of about how much of a loser this guy is. Um, there are some moments of the cinematography I really liked. I really liked when in um, they were an Austerlitz when they fall under the, the ice and you just see that red bud blooming underneath it as they drown. I thought that was really beautiful. And I liked that sort of so many of these battles take place in the snow. So when you get to Waterloo and you see that green grass, you're suddenly like, oh, something's different about this. Those are great little, great little parts. I didn't like how many horses exploded. Don't love yeah. horse death. That was upsetting. Um, so, so Gita and I went to Nighthawk to see this movie, and the entire time I was just taking little notes on the little card that normally you put things, you know, like hot dog or like Pepsi <laughs> on. And so I just, my, my first note is just horse cannon. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, I was like, ooh, neat horse. And then it just got exploded. <laughs> so upsetting. Yeah. But you know, what I'm really happy about with this movie is that I'm glad that we're still making movies that employ horses. <laughs> it's really important that we're giving them jobs. The horses need jobs. They do. Yeah, I I don't know that I'd watch that movie again, but I'm glad that I saw it. That's what I, how I feel about it. Well, it was funny because, like, like he, as you said, like Phoenix and Kirby seemed to know that they were giving comedic performances. And it was yeah. as if Ridley Scott still thought that he was making a, uh, an epic history. And so it's yeah. A, yeah, it's a comedy filmed as epic history where the actors know what's going on. <laughs> I just love when he's like coming on to his wife and he starts like stomping and neighing like a horse. <laughs> you know? Just ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. Yeah, God. Sorry, I'm just reading my comments, uh, my, my like thoughts. And it's mostly just like, I love France, frowny face. Your your fifteen year old sister is hot, frowny face. <laughs> you oh uh, uh, yeah, Czar Alexander. I wish we were brothers. It's like, well, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, it's crazy. We could be brothers if you really wanted. If you really wanted that, we could make that happen, buddy. Mm-hmm. God, I. I thought this movie was incredibly funny. I think a lot of movies that are serious are funny, but I think that Joaquin Phoenix. I've seen him do deadly serious before, and that's not what he was doing in this film. Right. He's he knows he's he knows what he's doing. He knows how to be an actor and how to turn in a serious performance. Was it uh I was never really here, right? Yes. Like just terrifying. Uh he <laughs> he's can, like a terrifying psychopath of that movie. He's really scary. Mm-hmm. But that this was a comedy, which is really funny. It's like the broader thing I, I think I want to talk about is something that's kind of been in the air the past year or so. Uh, I didn't read one. All I heard in the film discourse about this movie uh, was that the historians didn't like it, that Ridley Scott is a grumpy old man, um, and that maybe this wasn't very good. I didn't see a lot of people say that it was funny or a comedy. Uh, I didn't see a lot of people kind of accurately describe what I was about to sit down and watch. And I don't even know if that's really what I want from film criticism, right? I don't know if I need someone to tell me if something, uh, like, I don't know if I need a Rotten Tomatoes score before I go see a film, right? That's not, yeah. that's not why I'm there, but yeah, 
I thought a lot of the discussion around this thing was boring. And I know that there's been a lot of talk lately about um, the decline of the film critic and kind of like the Pauline Kael mode and the rise of these influencer critics. Yeah, I mean, look at what happened to Angelica Jade Bastien for writing a critical review of Beyonce's new film. She is like not on Twitter at all. And people were really taking this review to task for saying something that I think is a cogent point, which is that Beyonce positions herself as someone who is very political and positioned the repu- uh, the um, the Renaissance tour as something that was about Black liberation. But she does not use her voice in a political way. She just says it's political. You know, it's very much a Black capitalist mode, very much the Jay-Z, gentrify your own hood type type positioning. That's not something, you know, you can disagree with that. But you shouldn't say, I saw people saying, like, this isn't film criticism. I'm sorry, that is exactly what film criticism is. It's not something that's designed to make you happy or affirm what you already believe, but something that's supposed to challenge you. You know, Sometimes I disagree with Angelica Jade Bastien, but I feel like she always makes her points very coherently. So I always know exactly where she's coming from and what she means. And I, even if I disagree with her, I want that voice in the conversation but, I mean, I'm glad she's not on Twitter because she would have been torn apart. She was being torn apart. Yeah, I feel like so much of, of you know, how the public thinks about criticism is just like, I want like film and cultural criticism as long as I agree with it. Yeah. And as long as it like forwards, you know my thoughts and feelings about X celebrity or like Y piece of media. And the second that there's something to challenge that or make me think a little bit more critically about that, it's like you're attacking me and everything I stand for. Yeah, it's a stand culture really is what that is. Unfortunately. It's, unfortunately. I mean, I feel like part of it is the the way that the celebrity profile has turned into complete access journalism. Celebrities don't need profiles anymore. They can just speak directly to their fans using social media. So the celebrity profile is designed to please the celebrity, essentially, to appease them and to make them feel good. Uh, The Time cover story interview for the person of the year for Taylor Swift is a great example of that also, where the journalist gets very close to challenging Swift's narrative that is being told to her, and then is like, but actually the point is that she felt cancelled, even though she was still selling out stadiums and had an incredibly successful career when she made this album about how cancelled she was. Yeah, just like how Napoleon was cancelled when he was exiled to Elba, and then he uncancelled himself <laughs> through sheer force of will. Big reputation, got a big <laughs> reputation. <laughs> Napoleon was a big celebrity, though, right? Yeah. No, Napoleon was Taylor Swift of his day, I think, yeah. in a big way, honestly. It's the same thing of uh, making your personal struggle a national problem. Yeah, again, one of my notes is slut exclamation point in parentheses Napoleon's version from the vault. <laughs> <laughs> so real. Absolutely real. Can we talk about uh swift a little bit more this is something that's been kind of interesting to me in the past like 48 hours too is that um people are projecting political issues onto taylor swift and being upset that she is or is not saying certain things about basically everything right i mean gaza is the one that i that i think has really got people upset right now but again it's this what do we like Taylor Swift making an Instagram post is not going to make Israel stop bombing Gaza, right? Yeah. 
why yeah. do we have this expectation of celebrity? That's so interesting. I, I think about this a lot, too, right? Because I would like for the celebrities that I like to have the same political opinions as me. But I know that that's not true, right? I, I, that's just something I, I have to live with, right? I'm, I'm further to the left of most of the people that are famous. Um, but because like stand culture is like a way of positioning yourself where your your interests are your personality. So if you have a political opinion, then you want your celebrity that you stand to also hold that political opinion. You know, Taylor Swift's fans really do see her as the avatar of all culture in the world. You know, I think about it a little bit like um people who are really into Blizzard games, Blizzard Entertainment, where they play only Blizzard games. They're completely inside that singular ecosystem. You know, you can see last night was the Game Awards. So this is why it's on my mind. You know, you can see Fortnite and Epic Games are trying to do the same thing. They've added a Lego building Minecraft mode to Fortnite. And also now there's a racing mode in Fortnite. So now you don't have to leave Fortnite to play all of the games. And Taylor Swift stands, like not just people who casually like her, but the people who are online fighting for her honor every single day. Those people want to create an ecosystem in which Taylor Swift says everything is their entire world. But they can't really accept that she is like a careerist. Like she has always been a strident careerist. That's one of the only things I really like about her is her business savvy. She's extremely good at at being a business person and maximizing how much attention and money she gets for her art. I think that is incredible. The Eras Tour is an incredible accomplishment and achievement. I mean, also not to mention like it's a three hour show every night with a different bespoke uh, encore for every single city she goes to, which is just nuts. Um, but it is, it's interesting. Like they, they, I see, I, I think it's in the same way where after folklore came out, I was like, well, if you like folk music and if you like these songs she's doing with Aaron Dessner, why don't you listen to the national? <laughs> they just don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> So back in 2017, I wrote this article for Jezebel, and this was right after um, Charlottesville. And I used to follow this account when I was like, I don't know, in high school called Feminist Taylor Swift. That was a fun one. Yeah. And so basically, if if you're not aware, um, it would take, you know, Taylor Swift lyrics and make them explicitly feminist. Like, you know, I wear short skirts you know, or she wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts, you know, we were both expressing our femininity in different ways. It's (laughs) all equally valid, like, like, cringy 2010s shit like that. Um, And right after Charlottesville, the person who ran the account was tweeting, like, I can't believe Taylor Swift hasn't spoken out about anything regarding, you know, like Trump or regarding, like, you know, white supremacy, when a lot of people... It, like the alt-right at the time were starting to use her likeness or talk about her as kind of this like Aryan queen situation. And she never, you know, publicly denounced that. And I say, you know, asterisk there, we'll come back to that in a second. I, I basically, I interview this woman, we publish the article and I do some research and I find out that apparently there was like a lawsuit from like Pinterest or something like that. I'm going to, I'm going to bungle this a little bit. So please forgive me, but there's basically like 
she hadn't spoken publicly about a lot of this stuff, and she had like tried to keep a lot of her speaking out against being used as a symbol by groups that she allegedly did not like quiet. And that was fascinating to me because it's like, you know, okay, what does this mean if you're not going to are you re- like the business savvy really steps in there and that's really what that represents to me or it's like okay you're not going to alienate people that even might be a part of your audience even if you disagree with them even if they theoretically stand you know against that you know fuck the patriarchy keychain on the ground um it's it's good for business if they also like you and basically we were you know Taylor's uh, representatives contacted my editor and were like, you need to edit this because, you know, we can't. They were basically pretty upset that we reported something that was already out there about this. And yeah, that's ridiculous. Did you all edit the piece or did you tell her representatives to fuck off? That's an amazing question because it was also coinciding with the day that I got hired full time out of my internship. So I was like, damn, can't believe I'm getting hired and fired within a day. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember there being an article about the lawsuit and then a subsequent article on like a really small time blog about uh, how she was being sued also by Taylor Swift people. I'm probably bungling this too. But Taylor Swift is incredibly conscious of her image and quite vocal about when she does not like it the way that it is being used or the way she's being criticized. I know there was a, I think, New York Times article or maybe New Yorker article about a journalist who recounted her experience uh, being invited into the sort of inner circle of the, the then popular Taylor Swift tour and then saying something critical of Taylor or asking a critical question and then was no longer invited backstage to hang out with everybody. You know, like, we are in a system where lots of young people only understand politics through celebrity and need celebrities to be their mouthpieces for the political opinions without understanding that you can go elsewhere or, in fact, criticize the celebrities you like uh, without saying that they need to speak out on anything. But just, I mean, Angelica Jade Bastien's article is entirely about this, where it's possible to really love Beyonce, but also be very conscious of how she's positioning the, the language of liberation to mean specifically the financial liberation of herself. So I found the article, and here's the editor note at the bottom. Upon publication of this article, Jezebel was contacted by a representative of Taylor Swift's, pointing out that she, via her attorneys, has denounced the white supremacist co-opting of her brand, which is just a beautiful... That's beautiful to me. Via her attorneys. Via her attorneys. One is in a statement to Pinterest about how she was associated with Hitler, which is harmful, abusive, ethnically offensive, humiliating, libelous, and otherwise objectionable. Public figures have rights. And then goes on. And then the second example was pointed to as a letter from Taylor Swift's attorney to the Daily Stormer, a white supremacist website which demanded the site remove its posts about her. As the Daily Stormer is no longer available online, it was not possible to confirm the existence of this letter. During one of those periods where the Daily Stormer had been taken down? Yeah. You know, time time is, is wild. That, that could have been like yesterday or like 10 years ago, as <laughs> even say. Right. I love, uh, I mean, I don't love... Um, but I remember like Keffel's doing the uh, getting supposedly a, a 
a certain website that I won't name because it will they will they like they they know and they will come uh getting a website <laughs> taken down uh it was back up in like a week true um that stuff is uh hard to squash out but it's not what we're here to talk about today <laughs> So true. Um, do you, Gita? Do you think that some of the, like the reason we have this big stand culture? This is just I'm just like taught, like thinking through it. Um, is because of the way that we consume media now. Like everything is so personality driven. Everything is looking directly into the camera, talking to the audience. Um, that the medium has shaped the way that we think about celebrity and think about our relationship to politics. So much stuff is, like, identity-driven now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is as a phrase that me and my husband repeat back and forth to each other frequently is, this is what no ideology does to a motherfucker, right? Like, there's just no real coherency behind the thought. Do you remember the the brief Taylor Swift fan union movement <laughs> that there was? You know, taking, like, not quite understanding the, the idea of collective bargaining, but not having a broader politic that encompasses more of the world than celebrities and celebrity gossip, right? You know, the, the fundamental misunderstanding, like the fundamental cornerstone of Stan culture and the way it misunderstands the flow of power is that uh, liking a celebrity and endorsing a celebrity is the same thing as having an ideology, having a politic, having a point of view on the structures of the world. You know, you can love Taylor Swift, and many, 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 many people in the world do. Like, I am the outlier, very much so, in my Taylor Swift, uh, basically, neutrality. I I f- sometimes find her very annoying and mostly find it difficult to have an opinion on her. Um, I... You can love Taylor Swift, and that's perfectly fine, but that's not the same thing as standing up for something, supporting being a feminist, supporting women's rights, supporting LGBTQ rights. You know, she makes vague sort of gestures towards all of these things. It's also telling Time magazine that it's really good that women's stories are being commodified because that it ends the patriarchy, which is just like not that's not how that works exactly. And you should read and understand the world outside of Taylor Swift's needs in order to understand why that's a very silly thing to say. I really like the phrase, uh, this is what no ideology does to a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. A lot. It's really, it's I think good. it's, yeah, I think that really explains a lot of just what's going on online right now uh, in general is, and I, and, you know, uh, I also think it does to a certain extent explain what happened in Revolutionary Friends. <laughs> it's true. No, it's so true. Napoleon had no ideology. Napoleon had Josephine and his own power. And those are the only two things he really cared about. And that's what no ideology does to a motherfucker. You get out exiled to a rock somewhere and you don't even get to have sex with your wife one last time. Yeah, it was all about will to power, right? Yeah. And just like recruiting bros who would kiss the ground you walk on for like no clear reason aside from the fact that like you talk a big talk. Even yeah. though you marched them all into Russia and had them die, yeah, yeah, that's Stan culture. That's the <laughs> that's early sta- that, and that's Stan, Stan culture. culture. <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, like that's what I mean. I th- I think that that's part of what happened there is you had like hun- hundreds and hundreds of years of outright subjugation and terror, um, and then 
like a spasm of violence trying to get, trying to like write the scales and some ideology that got mixed in there. Um, and then just a succession of like worshiping, uh, I think the guillotine and terrible men. I was going to say, we were texting about worshiping the guillotine the other day. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that, that like, well, you have to be careful. Like nihilism is really appealing, I think, but you have to be careful because you end up worshiping the things that you give your attention to. I think if you're not careful, um, which is how we get things like people who are really fucking weird about video games or Taylor Swift or star Wars on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there are people that would probably tell you that they're atheists or CNE or C Christians, but, uh, what they're, what they really are is their stands and they worship these pop culture things and they've made that into their religion. And that's why they're willing to fucking fight. Like it's a war online with other people about it. Yeah, you often mention how Disney adults are just a kind of Christian in a lot of ways, where I I love browsing, like, wedding shaming. I, I got married, so I got a little bit into the sort of wedding shaming and wedding, like, venting subreddits on Reddit. And the way that they describe the necessity of having a Disney-filled wedding, like, at a turning point in your life a fundamental pillar of your journey into adulthood it must be surrounded by disney objects you need to be dressed like snow white it's a lot you know i don't understand that the only way i can understand that urge is through religion like we had a religious wedding we had a religious jewish wedding and we also had a hindu ceremony and those were really important to me because of the symbols and the idea of continuity of my family and my family line and I, I guess the only way I could explain wanting to replace that with Disney is if Disney holds that same level of importance to you inside your heart. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right. Welcome back, cyber listeners. We are talking about Stan culture, Napoleon. And I think we're going to get into some criticism here, some film criticism, some video game criticism, just criticism in general. What's wrong with it? Uh, And what happens when people steal yours? Yeah, what does happen? What does happen? That's a good question. Before we answer that question, I just want to bring up something that um, I noticed throughout throughout Napoleon. And I think we'll dovetail a little bit with what we're going to start talking about, which is the newspapers that showed up during Napoleon, (laughs) which as we were watching the movie and eating tater tots, Gita and I were like, this is the shade room, but for (laughs) like 1800s France. Just straight bitches. I loved it. Old Boney's wife is at it again. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. There was a there was a word for like the 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 French people during the revolution that made like the dirty cartoons. 
I can't mm. remember. I learned it from a YouTube video recently, like in the past 24 hours, but I can't remember <laughs> it. I can't remember it now when it matters. Wow. You um, let us all down. Yeah. Damn. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I'm not. It's fine. Well, I'm not good at, uh, I've written, I, of all the types of journalism and writing I've done, um, I've done a fair amount of like pop culture criticism. And I think it's the hardest thing. Uh, like absolutely the hardest, hardest thing. Um, I can, I will interview 10 people about uh, a military incident and cobble together a story out of that, uh, any day of the week and would rather do that than try to have to sit down and, and get 800 words out about how I feel of about Alan Wake too. I don't want to do it. It's hard. It's so hard. <laughs> um, you are really good at it, Gita. No problem. <laughs> Thank you. I, I simply can't stop thinking about Alan Wake 2 is the thing. <laughs> so I'm just doing the dishes and being like, isn't it crazy how Alan Wake 2 and Lana Del Rey are the same thing? <laughs> uh, is that is that piece out yet? I know you were teasing. Oh, Yo, yes, it is. I And Chris Person made an incredible Photoshop for the, the feature demo on the blog where he put Alan Wake's head on the cover for, did you know there's a, a tunnel under Austin Boulevard? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes. It's so good. But setting that aside, like it's 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 tough work. Uh, it is really hard, <laughs> and uh, some like it's so hard, in fact, um, that there's an entire cottage industry of people that will just take it from you. They will just take it from you and and say that it's their own, or very lightly cite the source in a way that's a little suspect. Um, so, like one of the other things that happened this week is that there this video came out from uh, H Bomber guy, four hours long, all about YouTube plagiarism. Um, I'm a big H bomber guy fan. I watch most of the videos and we got about halfway through this one. Um, and a name came up, a name I recognized. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Harry, Harry gave me a heads up that this was happening. And I'm so glad because, uh, the level of intensity of people reaching out to me about this was a lot. <laughs> um, he reached out to me last week and was like, hey, you're in a video. Um, you were plagiarized by someone. And he didn't tell me who because, I, I mean, I have a big mouth, so I understand <laughs> why he didn't why he didn't do that. Um, but when it hit, like, it's a four-hour video. And the first two hours are, like, different examples of YouTube plagiarism, some which are really important to discuss, you know, they're major creators, very, very big platforms who simply don't credit where they've gotten their sources or try to obfuscate the credit so it looks like they've done original research when in fact they are actually just reading from one specific source. And that's important. But then he went into a creator, a man named James Summerton, and the remaining two hours of the video was about this. I don't even show up until hour three. It's wild. Yeah, I was waiting the whole time because the the day that we saw Napoleon, I think it was like the day before this video was supposed to come out. And you were like, yeah, there's like this video coming out. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch this eventually. And then I see it trending on Twitter for days. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I need to set aside a chunk of time where I'm not watching a different three hour YouTube video about the fall of monarchies between 1905 and 1920. Um to sit down and devote to watching this four hour video plus like a, a was it a 20 minute or a 40 minute corollary video? Yeah, there is another like 40 minute corollary video. And then another creator um, uh, made another two hour video just fact checking all the claims that James Summerton made because it turns out he also just made a bunch of stuff up. Todd in the Shadows. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I have not watched that one, but I saw that one suggested to me, and I was like, please, God, free me from this loop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it was really interesting in watching the James Summerton video, other than discovering that he read verbatim my words and also the quotes that I reached out to people to get for an article about Attack on Titan that I worked really, really hard on for Vice uh, was... It's so interesting that he managed to convince his audience to give him so much money. He was making, reportedly, on his Patreon, $170,000 a year, which is a lot, a lot of money. Um, to convince them that by saying, I'm the only conduit you have to the history of queer cinema, and I'm the only one that's really doing it in this way. So you need to support me specifically. When you look at his work, and he, at one point... He, uh, there's a very famous documentary about queer history and cinema called The Celluloid Closet. And he more or less just took that documentary, put filters on it so it wouldn't be uh, caught by YouTube's uh, automatic content ID and just recut everything so it looked like he was doing the research, but it was basically just the documentary itself. There's a lot of... It's funny, I always used to think that like a lot of my favorite YouTubers are people that uh, read books so I don't have to. He took it too literally, I would say. Yes, uh, but usually they say like, hey, I read this book, here's a summation, or here's the quotes I'm pulling. James was just, just copy-pasting, and he's certainly not the only one. No, uh, some people, so now the H. Bomber Guys subreddit has become sort of a hub for investigating other, you know, YouTube videos because they've become more aware of plagiarism on YouTube. But it's just like a bottomless well, right? Like the system that YouTube has devised is one that incentivizes creators to upload as much as possible in order to get money from ad revenue. Ad revenue, the ad revenue deals, that's an extremely low payout for creators, so just know that. That's why most of your favorite creators have a Patreon, because they can't support themselves on ad revenue alone. So how does someone like James Summerton, who wants to talk about queer cinema history, but doesn't really have enough time or desire to do research? Well, the easiest way to do to get videos out quickly is just to rip people off. And there's no real re- recompense from YouTube itself. You know, it required someone with an even bigger platform than Summerton to call him out to get him to stop doing this. Summerton has now deleted his account and privated all of his videos. Yeah, that's how I feel about like when, you know, before even uh, the video got to Summerton, just talking about Illuminati, um, who's another creator that would talk about... um, was less criticism from what I understand and more just like, here's information about this thing in history or this situation. Uh, they had a video about Fire Festival that I had a bunch of videos about this. Fire Festival, another video which directly ripped off Vice Media. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the wilder things I've ever seen, which you, you mentioned this before, Gita, where literally the way that this person got around the copyright censors is by literally recoloring and blurring out, like, bugs on videos. It it works because, and it's, like, not something I want to YouTube to crack down on necessarily because people do that. People started doing that because 
YouTube's content ID system favors the copyright holders in a way that makes it almost impossible to use clips that would fall under fair use. Right. Right. So that's how those methods were developed. In fact, H. Bomber guy in a video about Sherlock has to reverse and put weird like filters on top of a bunch of clips from Sherlock in a video that is about Sherlock and is about criticism about Sherlock. But those techniques get picked up by people who are a lot lazier than Harry. So exactly. It, it you know, so it, the, that same reverse, like it's it's a real double edged sword situation where I know that it's good that people know how to get around the content ID system because it targets things that are unfairly, you know, maligned by YouTube's desires to not get sued by copyright holders. Um, but also, it allows someone like Illuminati to just be real vague about where the content uh, that she's talking about and she's the clips that she's talking over came from. Yeah, and the the real wild part that it's just like, okay, her her production schedule was like something like three videos a week. I think about this in the sense of how, like, you know, obviously these people are making the choices actively to produce this content that is actively plagiarizing or is actively, you know, untrue, et cetera, et cetera. But we live in such a a system in which this kind of conduct is incentivized. And the constant churn of content, no matter the cost, continues to be how these things are going. And, like, yes, it is extremely and obviously the fault of these individuals for not having higher standards and not, you know, doing things the right way. But, you know, I talk to a lot of people who ask me, you know, how do how do I get a following on social media? How do I make sure that I get – how do I grow my presence? And the answer, unfortunately, is keep posting. Yeah. But for some people, they're like, I know how to find the easy way out of that. And then you end up in this situation. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, it is a feature, not a bug when it comes to like, it doesn't matter to YouTube that a lot of this content is plagiarized, right? Uh, until it becomes a legal problem for YouTube. But right. it's not really a problem for them uh, because they get to run ads against all this content. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It just matters that there's ads playing against it. If that's why, like, journalism is in the state that it is right now, right? Where every single website you go to is plastered in ads. It's because the people that own the company don't really care about the content that's being put on it, just that you can run ads against it. Yeah, I definitely was thinking about uh, my own job and output as I was watching the H-Bomber guy video. Um, Because he's a guy that takes, like, six months to put out a four hour video that's well researched and edited. Um, and you, like that is not, that is atypical. A lot of stuff that's on YouTube and a lot of stuff that like we do is, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta service that churn. Yeah. You gotta get those posts up. It's interesting going from, you know, and the reason why Harry can do that by the way, is because he has an extremely lucrative Patreon, you know, and he is able to support himself completely off of donations from fans. And it is interesting. I've gone from, I used to used to be co-workers, you know? I used to be in the corporate system. Now I run a website that is 100% 
uh, reader supported. That means we do not run ads. We do not do anything except rely on the subscriptions from readers, which means that it's completely changed how I look at doing journalism. It's kind of wild. I Yesterday, when the Game Awards were occurring, we, as a site, all collectively decided we didn't want to do coverage of the event itself. Why? Why would we do that? We don't need to. We don't need to rely on SEO traffic in order to meet some corporate marker uh, that they need to hit because they promise a certain amount of views on ads. We just can sit back and watch it and decide if we want to report on it or not. Um, there's definitely a lot of stuff I would like to say about the Game Awards, but I can now take my time and write a thoughtful, well-researched essay instead of having to turn something around immediately for the next day. My mental health is so much better now. My skin is cleared. My crops are watered. Like, I'm doing fantastically. And as much as I liked having the prestige of the vice name look behind my words, and it's definitely helped in this specific circumstance with Summerton to have a lawyer to contact Vice's general counsel uh, to inform them of infringement on Vice's copyright. But it's it's also, I just think, this is a healthier way to to write and it's healthier i feel like we are we only have to worry about what the needs of our readers are and nothing else and that means you the reader also get a much better higher caliber of content to read and you know not just content criticism reporting essays you know stuff that takes thought and time yeah think about an anecdote that's buried in uh the tim rogers cyberpunk video he talks about working at Kotaku and he made these really beautiful uh, like videos about games that were coming out, things that he anticipated. Like he was doing the Tim Rogers thing, mm-hmm. but uh, for like Kotaku on a smaller scale um, and like the things that he would work the hardest on would get, you know, a couple thousand views and he's in a meeting with someone who had just taken the Keanu Reeves reveal moment, uh, I think from the game awards mm-hmm. and, like uploaded it into the Kotaku, like the geo media system. And that video got, you know, a million views and the, the suit is in the room. He's like, really great job on this. Really well done. It's like the suit hadn't watched either video. He just knew that this one got a million views, even though the only work that was done was like extracting it from, uh, its source and then just re uploading it into your own system, right? Yeah. You know, that's what the system incentivizes. I was at Kotaku at the same time as Tim Rogers, too. <laughs> so I remember being in meetings with him where my boss and other corporate, you know, people from the website were saying, We love what you do, Tim, but can you do it shorter and faster? And the answer is no. He straight up can't. He needs to spend an entire year on a video. I'm I'm working on something with him, and we haven't even pitched it to me like a year ago, and we haven't even started doing it. So it's it's it just like if you want the stuff that's quality, it takes time, and if stuff's coming out that's extremely high quality, extremely frequently, you should feel kind of suspicious. Yeah, I just think about you know how do we make everyone happy? The answer is you can't. Yeah, but. The the closest way we can is something that I like to call hiding your vegetables, mm-hmm. in which there are certain things that you do sometimes in order to keep the lights on, and then you do the things that you want to do. And, you know, unfortunately, that's like a necessary evil in a lot of, you know, 
different businesses, different things, just in life generally. Who wants to clean their toilet? You know, sometimes you have to do that. And then you can go and, you know, hang some beautiful art in your apartment. Um, but I think about TikTok and and the journey that I've been on spiritually, professionally with that. And, you know, I I don't enjoy watching TikTok. I The videos that I watch in my spare time on TikTok or three-minute clips of Call the Midwife and Young Sheldon with, like, slightly different pitch so that it's not caught by copyright, whatever. Um, why do I watch this? I do not know. It just is shown to me, and I'm like, sure. And those are the things that do really, really well. And then sometimes the things that I make that don't perform very well are the things that I really care about and the things that I put a lot of effort into. And it can be very demoralizing because, you know... You're not necessarily at, at the at, you know at the very minimum at first. You're not always feeding the audience that you want to be feeding. You are throwing something out into the open and saying, you know, it's dinner time. Who, who's coming? And then nobody shows up. Yeah, I used to refer to this as like the SEO beast. You have to feed the SEO beast, and I. You know, we're using SEO tactics in order to get better Google rankings at Aftermath. That's like, you know, we change the URLs, we add keywords, et cetera, et cetera. We do alt text, which is not just great for accessibility, but helps things like, uh, like, uh, it helps with Google ranking as well. Um, but we don't have to do what time does the game award start? You know, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. And that makes a huge difference in my general level of sanity. <laughs> Yeah, y'all had a ran a great piece maybe a week or two ago uh, about like why are these headlines like this? Yeah, that was a great Luke Plunkett Plunkett blog. Yeah, this nine out of ten game on Steam is exactly like XCOM or something. You know, like talking about Marvel's Midnight Suns and it's on sale. Yeah, but you've got to because of the way the ro- the machines work that oversee all of our lives. You have to phrase things in such a way that it gets excited. And it wants to, and it like wants to move it up the algorithmic charts, right? Yeah, you have to excite the machine. <laughs> you really do. Uh, the machine, not the people. It's gotta, gotta please the machine. Yeah, it's um, it's f- infuriating to read those kinds of headlines, right? Like my my big question all the time is, tell me just what is the game? Tell me what the game is. But I've been in those meetings, right, where we negotiate headlines, and you know. No one's going to click on the name of a game that they've never heard of before because then they've got all the information. So you have to tease the information so they'll click on it. When in fact, like if you write a good blog and you put the name of the game in it, people will still click on that and it's fine. It just won't please the machine. It's not going to fit into the machine system in a way that makes the machine happy. But who are we writing for? I thought we were writing for human beings. No, not anymore. And as and as uh, LLMs continue to take over, um, the, I feel like the problem will get worse and decline will accelerate in this space. Yeah, you know, the internet is already showing signs of uh, being becoming a series of machines talking to machines. So, do you remember the thing from September when Google was surfacing? When you could, you could Google, can eggs melt? And Google will tell you, yes, eggs do melt. Because a Quora uh, question with a ChatGPT auto-generated response ChatGPT said that eggs can melt because it doesn't know anything. It's a machine. And uh, Google just grabbed that slice and put it in the search results because Google, another machine, can't fact check that. So for a little while, if you Googled can eggs melt, which they can't, Google will tell you yes. 
I also recreated uh, uh, Maddie Lupchansky, who is a great comics artist. Uh, she the she did a Google search for sinus inflammation and ended up getting a research result from Google that gave her information about penis inflammation. So I was able to recreate that very easily. And it's it's like this is this is not information that's useful to me as a human being, but it's all pleasing the machine, so nobody cares. Have you seen uh They Paid Me in Woims? They paid me in Woims? No, I haven't seen that. So it's a um uh I can't remember the name of the comic. It's like an it's an old comic from the thirties that is continued that is continued on uh, and is quite beloved and has a really good uh, uh, artist and author right now. But there's, oh, yes, uh, there's, there's one where she, she goes, she's, she goes to a friend. She's having a, fr- like a conversation sluggo. It's the name of the friend. And he's, there's a panel where he's holding up a bunch of worms and he says, they paid me in woims. Um, so apparently that's like a really popular panel. People want to see sluggo holding up his woims. If you Google, they paid me in woims. Uh, which I encourage everyone who's listening right now to do. The first result in Google is uh, an AI, an obviously like LLM generated article about the phenomenon of people being paid in woims and what it means and what happens if you go to a restaurant and you overhear the waiters talking about how they got paid in woims. And it's like they, people just want to see the panel. They just want to see Sluggo holding his woims. They don't need this weird 900 word piece that was written by a machine just so it can get caught up in the, like the machine thing. Right. It's, 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 yeah. and we're going to see more. Of I that. was hoping that we would get a conversion rate there, but you know, <laughs> that's asking too much of the machine. Clearly dollars to Williams. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's so depressing. I mean, I think recipe blogs are an early example of how this works, right? Where recipe blogs, the whole everybody knows in order to get your recipe, you have to scroll down through a whole bunch of text. I don't even mind the text. I like the little blogs that Smitten Kitchen writes about their recipes. <laughs> I think they're sweet. Um, but it's just true. And why is that? Because of Google ranking. That's it. They want to fit as many keywords as possible into their things. And if you just put the recipe in, then it won't rank on Google. And we should have all known by the time we realized that recipe blogs were like this, that if you're writing in something and putting on the internet, you're no longer writing for a human being. You're writing to please machines. Is this why film criticism is dead? Or why film criticism is being declared dead by some? I think it's why the decline of writing has happened so swiftly in the past 10 years. I think it's like we are now at a critical juncture where we need to, again, this is what no ideology does to a motherfucker, right? We're at a critical juncture where we need to decide whether or not we need to, we are supporters of machines or human beings. I'm always on the side of human beings. Blood in the machine, man. <laughs> like, we got to break the wheel. Gita is team human, officially declaring. Yes. Hashtag team human. Just like I was hashtag team Jacob. Wow, my Team Edward pin is literally on the bulletin board behind me. <laughs> I loved Edward, but he's a freak. <laughs> Jacob is a normal man. Is he? Is he? He's a werewolf. Doesn't he? Doesn't he fall in love with a baby? Okay, up until the that's point complicated. He falls in love with a baby. <laughs> is, it, is it complicated? It is. He was <laughs> attracted to Bella because he could feel the babies that he was mes- destined for inside of her.
Exactly. You fell in love with an ovum first. <laughs> so, so true. That's not better. <laughs> I don't think any of this could be classified as good necessarily. <laughs> But something I also wanted to talk about before before we end this thing and wrap it up is is to bring it back to Napoleon for a second. It's not not to harp on Napoleon um, too too much, but you know, I want to talk a little bit about you know the historians and the people that were talking about you know okay this was inaccurate and like what that does for film criticism as well, especially because like. You know, one of the thoughts that I had while I was watching this movie is, like, part, this is art, this is criticism of a time, this is an interpretation of a time, and then part, you know, if I wanted to learn about Napoleon, I could watch a YouTube video of a guy sitting in front of a bunch of Funko Pops and just, like, get the information that I need. Um, Mm -hmm. But you're obviously, you know, most of us know that we're going to to the theater to see Napoleon the movie, not Napoleon the documentary, or, you know, Napoleon the you know, history, Ken Burns, blah, blah, blah. You're going because it's it's an artistic interpretation of, you're telling this story, you know, for the purpose of learning something outside of just the facts. But not everybody's going into things like criticism, going into art, expecting that, despite the fact that that is what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about this a lot when whenever a movie gets criticized for being not historically accurate. I was thinking a lot about uh, Inside uh, Lewin Davis being criticized by people from the Greenwich folk scene by, by saying the, the folk scene was nicer than this. And that may be true. That's almost definitely true. But Lewin Davis is not real. He's not a real man. <laughs> and it was a made up story about a fake guy. Even in made-up stories about real guys, real historical figures like Napoleon, um, it it is difficult to explain to people that whenever you put a frame around anything in any context, you are choosing to show some things and not show others. You should always, if you want to learn about something, you should always be seeking multiple sources and multiple perspectives. Because the truth is not somewhere in the middle, but it's an amalgamation of multiple different points of view. So a movie about Napoleon is already something that is an amalgamation of lots of different points of view, right? Because it's like based on a lot of different pieces of research. But also it's Ridley Scott's opinion on Napoleon. And that is difficult to explain, especially to all the French critics that hated it. It's like, oh, uh, a movie about Napoleon from a British guy wasn't flattering to Napoleon? Shock. Shocked. <laughs> crazy wild how they would yeah they this englishman would diss napoleon like this god yeah and it's like you know thinking about all these these youtubers too i think about how you know so much is lost when you're going to these creators just expecting to be told something and not and not going there for the specific synthesis by that person yes or if the synthesis that you thought was by that person is actually by someone else. Yes. Or someone else's. Yeah. What was so frustrating about being ripped off by Summerton is that he used my words to support a point that I don't believe in. You know, the video that he was making about Attack on Titan was, Attack on Titan doesn't really mean anything. The essay that I wrote 
was about how there is fascist imagery in Attack on Titan, but the conditions of stan culture and fandom culture make it difficult for people who are fans of this incredibly popular show to divine further meaning from these images or even understand how they themselves personally feel about these images because it's all about whether you like something or not. So that is a much more complicated thing to say than, oh, maybe it doesn't matter if that there is fascist imagery in the show. Um, but it's also the synthesis that I was doing required a lot of brain power. And I remember feeling like I was just hitting my head against a wall while writing this thing and trying to understand my own thoughts and communicate effectively. I, I feel like people like Summerton thrive on being quote unquote second screen content. So stuff that is just on the television while you are doing something else or looking at your phone. And that is definitely what a lot of people are looking for, but it also means that the people that are seeking that content have a lower standard of quality than I do when I look for stuff on the internet. If I am watching a video about a topic that I know little about, I want to be 100% sure it's a reliable source and not just some guy on YouTube because there's no, like, there's no stop gaps there. There's no systems to catch you or to catch this person if they're doing something unethical. It's all based on trust. And like charisma is the most dangerous thing to trust. Yeah. Uh, Bomber guy opens his video with uh, a story about famous curmudgeon writer Harlan Ellison winning a plagiarism case. And he's like, this is the most recent one I could find where the writer won. And it happened in the 70s to Harlan Ellison. Yeah, the person that would be fighting for his right <laughs> so loudly and so irritatingly that eventually you just have to give it to him. Yeah, and I mean, that was part of, uh, and I, I would say that that was part of Ellison's identity, too. Is yeah. that, like, that was, he did that his entire life was fought, fight with people about getting paid, about being plagiarized. And he was right most of the time. Um, James Cameron famously called him a parasite, I believe. Uh, but it's sad that that is like the, the big example that is put forward at the beginning. Uh, as, as, as I think he said, as I think H-Bomber guy says, right, that these fights are not won very often. Yeah, a lot of people asked me if I was going to sue James Summerton. And like the answer to that question, I wrote a blog about this on Aftermath, but the answer to that question is no. I have my, my father-in-law works in entertainment law, and we talked it over. And while I did my due diligence, which is just contact Vice's general counsel, and like they're going to take care of it. I'm not involved in that process at all. Um, there's nothing else I really can do. You know, he's Canadian, number one. So I'd be doing a lawsuit that straddles two different countries and two different systems of law. That is really complicated. Two, lawyers cost money. I did not start my own website because money was easy for me to come by. <laughs> you know, like I had to start a small business because I want to support my family. Um, three, lawsuits take time and I don't want to think about this guy anymore. You know, I don't want to spend months to years of my life to get a somewhat unsatisfactory result. 
You know, I, for my mental health, for my ability to support my family, for just my ability to continue to move throughout the world, have to just accept that a horrible injustice has been done to me. And that's just like part of being an adult, unfortunately. You know, they're, they got this like Tumblr ask. <laughs> I got a Tumblr ask. was like, why don't you ruin him? And I'm sorry, that's a fantasy. People who do bad things do not get ruined. People who follow the rules do not get rewarded. <laughs> People who cheat often do come out on top, and that sucks. But what needs to change is the conditions that create that, that incentivize that behavior in the first place. And I don't know how to do it, but for me, like getting removing myself from the ad based model of of payment for writing and criticism is like the only thing I can really do. So I'm very grateful for the attention given to me because it's really helped aftermath in some ways and brought attention to the website and the project we're doing. But other than that, like I, I feel like hopefully. The end result, like what would be real justice here is Summerton fades into obscurity and all the people he ripped off become elevated in their place. Like, please go read Tinkerbells and Queens. Please definitely watch The Celluloid Closet. It's an incredible documentary. You know, watch all the fellow YouTubers that he ripped off. Read my work, but also read the work of Caitlin Burns, who was ripped off by this guy. You know, like... Try to be more suspicious of authority figures that tell you that they know it all. They don't. <laughs> they want you to feel that way because they want you to feel like you can't leave their little ecosystem and that there's no one else you can trust. And I think the people that we can trust the most frequently are the ones that say, hey, I'm not the expert on all of these things. That's like, you know, citing sources is beautiful. We love we love attributing. We love... I don't know. The, what really got me was Illuminati's paste bin of of sources that wasn't even numbered. And like, look, I know I'm a pedant that came from like fucking academia, whatever. But we, how how you need to you need to cite your sources? Yeah, it's good for yourself. It's good for everybody. It helps people that care about the topic that you've allegedly made them interested in go and find out more about that topic that you clearly cared enough about to make a video about it. I mean, it's very easy to cite a source. When I was watching the now private Attack on Titan video that Summerton plagiarized me for, he plagiarized my quotes, and I thought to myself, how easy would it have been to say, Jeff Thu uh, told Motherboard this, instead of just quoting. You know, that is a, an appropriate attribution. I think, though, that sources on screen should be the standard from here on out, honestly, because it's very easy to get away with not identifying where information came from if you don't visually show it in a format like YouTube. But it's, you know, maybe it's because I'm, a do I'm the child of an academic and I'm a journalist married to another journalist, but I am extremely skeptical whenever I hear a claim that sounds too good to be true or really, really outrageous. You know, every time I see something that's unsighted, I think, where do they see that? Where, where do they find that information? Who said that? And every time I hear a claim that sounds like that makes me go, really? I immediately try to look it up. And that's just what you have to do. It, 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 it defeats the purpose of second screen entertainment. But second screen entertainment is kind of bad for you. <laughs> like otherwise, like even the other things that are professionally produced that I consider second screen entertainment, it's stuff like Kitchen Nightmares, which is like 
eating straight garbage from the trash can. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> it's delicious garbage, but it's bad for you. Uh, I think that is a beautiful warning to end the episode on. Emily, unless you've got something else. No, I just think that uh, should we have Gita uh, talk a little bit about uh, 52 Pickup? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so there's a, I did not know there was so much to know about the new 52. It's not the new 52. I see everyone makes this mistake. Everyone thinks it's the new 52. No, the new 52 is something that has a lineage that ties directly back to this comic. But after infinite crisis, which was a sequel to crisis on infinite earths, they, the the DC Comics rebrand was one year later. And the idea was there was a year that the readers didn't see where a bunch of things happened and the status quo got shifted. And 52 was a comic that was pitched to explain what happened in that year. It was all the powerhouse writers of DC, including Grant Morrison. Um, let me look up who was actually working on it because I can't remember off the top of my head because I'm horrible with names. Uh, 52... Let's see. It was written by Jeff Johns, Grant Morrison, Greg Rucka, Mark Wade, Keith Giffen. And it, these are like, these are the big writers of DC, especially at that time. And it followed all of their, a lot of characters that are more obscure and uh, out of the spotlight, characters like Renee Montoya or The Question and Booster Gold, Ralph Dibney, and it followed what they were up to because also the conceit of One Year Later is that all the big heroes like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, they took a year off and worked on themselves, you know, <laughs> uh, for various We love reasons. a sabbatical. Absolutely. Superman needs a break. He needs to just chill for a while. Uh, he needs to work on his journalism. Come on. But uh, it is an interesting comic because the way that they all wrote it was sort of like they were very much inspired by shows like Lost, like at the beginning of peak TV. And like uh, also, you know, the idea was that this comic would come out weekly. So they wanted it to feel like a television show. Um, But also they did not complete the brief. (laughs) They did not explain what happened in that missing year at all. They just went off on their own tangent. And the comic is way better because they did that. Uh, it, it's, it's a very good story and a very good way to get into comics, I think, because it isn't about the biggest mythology. It's about the little guy. It's about what's happening to people, like, when Superman's not around. And it's also, like, a very interesting document because so many reverberations happened because of this comic existing, including, like, the movie Black Adam happened because... Someone did a fan cast of Black Adam where they said it should be The Rock. And The Rock saw that and it gave him a brain virus that is affecting him to this day. (laughs) And where can people find this beautiful podcast? Oh, 52 Pickup. It is being published by Aftermath. um, And you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to listen to bonus episodes, though, you need to subscribe to Aftermath. And we have a couple of cool interviews that we're very excited to share with you guys. Did you get Grant Morrison? No, we didn't get Grant Morrison, but we got we got some very very cool comic book writers. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Yeah, you'll you'll have to subscribe to see it seems. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but there's some things that are only for our paying customers. 
As it should be. <laughs> Gita, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and, and wandering around Napoleon and Stan culture and plagiarism with us. No problem. I would do it every day if I possibly could, but unfortunately I need to support my beautiful baby website, which you can find at aftermath.site. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.